0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, October 21st. Joining me in the studio via Skype, Certified Financial Planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
1: Great. Nothing smells better than bank earnings in the morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, if that's truly the case, on today's financial show, we have got a lot to offer. We are digging into what's been a very big week of earnings from companies like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Ameris Bank, or American Express. Seriously, I could just keep on going, so I'll stop there. But rest assured, we've got plenty more. Uh, We're also going to check in on Schwab's latest effort to bring more value to his trading platform. We're going to check in with the Million Acres team and see what they're thinking about the recent WeWork fallout and how that's impacting the commercial real estate space. Of course, we'll have a couple of what's the last stock you bought and why, and a couple of ones to watch for you for the coming week as well. So, as you may have gathered to this point, we have got a jam-packed show, somewhat limited time. So, folks, let's just get right into it. Uh, Matt, let's start with Bank of America. I think this is, you know, this is a company obviously you like a lot. You talk a lot about it. Um, you've chosen it a number of times. You're one to watch. I think you own shares personally, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, it did look like it was a a strong quarter for them, particularly. Uh, The investment banking side of the business seems to be doing well. Um, But what were some of your takeaways from Bank of America's most recent quarter?
1: I mean, yes, investment banking was great. Consumer lending was great. The biggest takeaway from Bank of America's is that unlike any of the other ones, there really wasn't anything I could find that was really disappointing. Um, If you look at even like we're about to talk about JP Morgan, excuse me, but even if you like dig into that, you'll find a few things where it missed. I think like equities trading, I think they missed or something like that. Bank of America was just good all around. Um, just like last quarter, they they have the you know the best consumer loan growth, the best deposit growth. Um, they grew their earnings fourteen percent year over year despite the interest rate environment. Um, they're buying back stock hand over fist. They repurchased eight percent of their outstanding shares over the past year. Um, mortgage originations is another thing that stood out. Um, that's kinda of, that's an area of the business that really benefits from lower interest rates. Yeah. And um mortgage originations were up fifty-eight percent year over year for them. So that was a big deal. Um, but yeah, they beat expectations pretty much all around. Um, in my mind, they're the winner of of bank earnings so far.
0: You know what struck me, and we were talking about this last week, um, I believe on market foolery for a spell, um, you know, having gone through the presentation, looking through the transcript and everything, and the thing that struck me was The success that they're having with Zelle. Now we've we've talked about Zelle on the show here. Um, It's always sort of it always takes a bit of a backseat to the PayPals and Squares of the world, and that's probably our fault more than anyone's. But the fact of the matter is that Zelle uh, is is actually bringing some results for Bank of America. I mean, they're gaining some traction where where this is concerned. I mean, when you talk about the digital opportunity that exists there, I mean, have thirty eight million users. Zelle transactions are growing. Uh, I mean, they have 8.9 million users of the Zelle platform that, that were responsible for just under 81 million uh, person-to-person transactions for the quarter. That essentially doubled from a year ago, and the amount of money that was flowing through that network of 21 billion dollars almost doubled from a year ago as well. So while we don't we don't put Zelle on the forefront of of how it impacts the bank. Um, in the big picture, clearly their investments in technology are paying off to a degree, at least.
1: Yeah, and people don't often think of Bank of America as really a a fintech company, but when you look at the the numbers, they've had they've consistently been a leader in mobile banking growth, um, consistently been a leader in the amount of transactions taking place online, um, how many consumers they have signed up for their online portal, things like that. Zell, you just mentioned. Bank of America's one number one mobile app in terms of functionality several times, um, and I mean I use Bank of America's app, and I think it's extremely functional. I agree. I, uh, I use it as well. I'm
0: impressed. I mean, it's it, we've been using it for a long time, and it really does work well.
1: So it's not just like these like, like the fintechy things like Zelle. They've just invested in technology all around, and I, in my opinion, that's why their efficiency is you know one of the best in the banking business. Where you know five six years ago that would have been unheard of. It's really because you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper to make a transaction through a mobile app or an online portal for the bank um, as opposed to going through a teller. So, it's really translated to a much more efficient operation and at a faster pace than most of its rivals.
0: Let's talk about a bank that's making some more investments on the consumer side. Certainly, uh, CEO Jamie Dimon sees that as a big opportunity, as, as well as, as the digital space. JP Morgan, what did you see with their most recent quarter?
1: Um, well, like I said JP Morgan's quarter was good. it wasn't perfect but they're a really good barometer for how the overall industry is doing just because of the when the diversification of their business they are the you know the biggest bank in the world uh, their assets grew to 2.7 trillion this this quarter Wow. Um, that's like an amount. Ima- that's an amount of money that I personally can't fathom, and I'm a math
0: person. <laughs> yeah. so. It's like Apple's balance sheet and Facebook's total user base. <laughs> it's just numbers that don't make any sense anymore.
1: <laughs> right, and just like you mentioned with Bank of America, they're doing a really good job of you know migrating their consumer base to mobile and online technology. I saw uh, active mobile customers were up twelve percent year over year. Um, you know, similar to Bank of America's results, and that's really been a driver of efficiency. Um, JP Morgan's you know the most profitable of the profitable of the big four. Um, return on equity of 15% is pretty outstanding for such a big bank. Um, the only, there were just a couple things that I didn't really like. Um, trading revenues kind of been a weak spot throughout the industry and most peers actually beat expectations. Uh, JP Morgan beat expectations on the fixed income side but not on the equities trading side. Which not that it's that concerning trading revenue. I've talked about on previous shows is probably the least predictable part of bank earnings. So take that with a big grain of salt. And it wasn't a giant miss, but trading revenue remains kind of weak throughout the industry. Um, return on equity, I mentioned, fifteen percent is the highest of the big banks. That's actually down from sixteen percent in the second quarter. Um, interest um, net interest margin compression is. Probably to blame for that, but just something worth keeping an eye on. Again, like Bank of America, unlike Bank of America, not perfect, but definitely more good than bad.
0: So, a company, a bank we've we've known for a long time as being the leader in the mortgage space, but but unfortunately, we've been talking more about it recently due to its uh, failure failures of leadership and culture culture issues, Um, and then then you you top it all off with essentially regulators telling them to. To hit pause on growth, Wells Fargo um, has had a tough go of it here the past couple of years. It does feel like maybe they're finally going to be able to turn the page here with new leadership uh, getting getting going. Uh, what what did you see in regard to Wells Fargo's quarter, and, and even even more interestingly, the the road forward for them now that they have that leadership question answered?
1: Well their interest margins i mentioned that you know falling rates are generally bad for bank interest margins and wells fargos were even worse than people thought and that combined they took a 1.6 billion dollar legal charge um in regards to their their bad behavior over the past few years and there's really no guarantee that that's the last of the the cost of the their scandals no um but on the on the path forward side it's actually worth mentioning their new ceo charles Scharf, starts today yeah So today is kind of the new day for Bank of America.
0: Um, Wells Fargo, you mean?
1: Or Wells Fargo, rather. Sorry. And um, I I honestly think the Fed is going to lift its penalty pretty soon, just because they did what they, you know, they put a non-Wall Streeter in. They went outside the bank for the new hire. Um, I mean, I thought previous leadership had done pretty much everything they could have done to move the bank forward without actually bringing in new leadership. Yeah. So. This is kind of the last stone to turn over, I think. In that in that case, like I said, there could be some more legal risk, but I think the bank's done pretty much everything that they could have done to get past what what was wrong. And uh, it's worth mentioning also that their asset quality is still you know the best of the big banks. Um, so you know the, the, at the core, they've always been known for you know responsible lending decisions, things like that, and that hasn't changed. Their asset quality is still fantastic. Um, so the Business is doing okay. It's just the interest rate environment and the legal risk that are really weighing on Wells Fargo right now.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of that stuff is is. Known, I mean, not 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 a lot left uh, to be discovered. I would I would think at this point. So I mean, I, you got to believe that the market start to look a little bit more forward, uh, particularly to that time where they do where that where that cap is lifted. Um, you know, and then there's a nice a nice tailwind perhaps uh, there for Wells Fargo in the coming in the coming quarters. Uh, let's let's take a look at Goldman Sachs real quick. I, Goldman Sachs obviously. Uh, Better known for the investment banking side of the business, um, I, I thought it was interesting in the call how uh, how they talked about the Apple Card specifically in partnership with Apple and Mastercard, and in this they they feel is the most successful uh, card rollout ever. Now it's worth noting they provided zero data to back that up, so it's just a feeling. I guess we're gonna have to trust them. Um, I, yeah, I. I Whatever, I mean that's fine. I mean, I, I think that Apple Card is a is a great value add for iPhone users. I think it's another tremendous form of engagement that should uh, benefit Apple over the long haul. And it's nice to see Goldman Sachs and Mastercard as partners in, in that in that venture. Uh, but what struck you? What stood out to you here with with Goldman Sachs report?
1: Well, Goldman has a pretty consistent history of like shattering expectations when it comes to earnings, and they didn't do it this quarter. Oh. Um, they actually missed earnings. Uh, you saw the stock go r- straight down in the morning, uh, right after they made the report. Um, it, the big culprit was their investments performed poorly. Goldman actually like has like, Goldman has a stake in WeWork, for example. Ah. Um, so they have a big <laughs> wow. investment portfolio. Yeah, right. that's not good. <laughs> so the main reason Goldman underperformed was because they had you know forty percent year over year decline in in their investment revenue. Yeah, like from from their investment portfolio. Um, and on the note of the Apple card. As soon as they mentioned that on the call, the stock shot higher. Uh, yeah, it's but,
0: fascinating to me that you you can say stuff like that and not back it up. It's just funny the psychology that, that goes with investing. I mean, sometimes it's it's you know, shoot first and aim second, but there you go.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, well, it's worth mentioning, when did they start rolling out the Apple card? I know Dan Klein was on the show and he discussed just getting it.
0: But it yeah, was during it the was second recently. it was during the third quarter. Yeah.
1: So even if someone got the card and charged a bunch of stuff on the apple card the bill isn't due till you know essentially the fourth quarter so none of this is reflected in their earnings yet if anything marketing costs and things like that would make this you know a negative for earnings in the third quarter. Well,
0: and I think they We're, talked about that as a drag also in the coming quarters. They're going to be investing in that in that product, in that relationship. So I think we can look forward, uh for lack of a better term, we can look forward to that dragging down or being a little bit of a headwind. But I mean it's all in the name of progress, right? It's seeing the forest for the trees, I guess.
1: Yeah. Credit cards, you're not gonna you're not exactly selling a product right away. You're <laughs> yeah. you're you're planning on you know getting it in the hands of as many consumers as possible and then they're gonna Gradually build up balances over time on average, and it's going to be a gradual add of a few billion dollars of, of loans. So sure. it's not going to be nothing, but for the time being, it's pretty much nothing on their revenue.
0: Well, all right, those are the big four there that we wanted to talk about. Uh, now, if we pivot over into a couple of companies that reported in, and we wanted to lump Amerisbank Bank Corp. and BBT together because these are companies, these are banks that are. Um, dealing with some big acquisitions here recently. Now, Ameris just wrapped up this Fidelity acquisition that's closed. BB&T is still working to close Uh, the SunTrust deal. But in looking at Ameris, um, I I go into any quarter with Ameris, and really, I'm I'm looking for the red flags, first and foremost, because it's a well-run bank. They continue to lob up good metrics. Efficiency ratio continues to remain in check. Um, It it really, for me, is all a matter of, are they integrating this Fidelity fidelity acquisition? Are the two cultures working together? And and how do they see this playing out? down the road in, in in Ameris, I mean, the acquisition added considerable assets to 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 the combined entity. It added 5.2 billion in total assets, 3.8 billion in total loans, and 4 billion in total deposits. So those numbers now stand: uh, total deposits at 13.7 billion dollars, total assets just under 18 billion dollars. And so, you can see that the bank is is a good bit larger than it was thanks to this deal. And at one point, I wanted to note, this was part of the justification for this acquisition of Fidelity. One of the justifications was it's going to give Ameris this access to this very attractive commercial real estate space. And that's true. I mean, it's going to. They also noted it's going to give them access to a lower-cost deposit base. And so, when they lobbed this metric out in in the call, and they talked about the deposit mix such that non-interest bearing deposits represented just about 30% of total deposits. Up from a little bit over 25% a year ago. And so to me, that's important to know because that really was a justification for the acquisition was getting access to a lower cost of deposits. And for a bank, particularly in a low interest rate environment, that's going to be important. And as they continue to scale up and get bigger, it does seem like new CEO, former Fidelity president. Palmer Proctor has uh, is, is stepped into the role nicely and, and has a good grip on the business. So, I, I suspect we're going to continue to see good things from Ameris in the coming quarters. And really, that's what we're paying attention to, is just making sure that that Fidelity uh, acquisition is is rolling in nicely. On the BB&T side, uh, there's still some questions to be answered there as far as the actual integration. Um, it, but right now, this is all about SunTrust. If you don't like the name Truist, which is ultimately what this is going to become. If you don't like that name, well, TS, because they got shareholder approval and this deal is basically done now. The acquisition's green lighted and the name is green lighted as well. Uh, so it's going to be something that closes in quarter four. Uh, we got an interesting tweet, uh, a fun tweet from at Chase's Fish uh, earlier in the week. And, and, and he says, Could the market finally be tired of quarter after quarter of adjusted, in quotation marks, EPS on BBT? I would love to hear your thoughts. On industry focus and uh, listen, let me tell you. I mean, you may be tired of adjusted, but I've been saying for a while it feels like we live in an adjusted world now. In every earnings report, banks, tech companies, restaurants—they're all—they're all reporting adjusted numbers. Uh, BB&T, which will eventually become truest, I mean, they're going to be get used to adjusted and pro forma because that's going to be uh, part of the earnings reports here for the for, for the foreseeable future. But the underlying business is just fine. Modest earnings growth of three point seven percent adjusted again. Uh, return on assets, 1.5%, not bad. They've been able to to keep that return on assets number at in, in, in that 1% or better range over the last several years, which is nice. Efficiency ratio ticked down a little bit. Uh, average total deposits up 5.2%. So, I think bb is in a good position. I think there's going to be a lot more certainty once this acquisition is finished up. And then it'll be kind of like Ameris. We're really just paying attention to the two cultures, making sure they ring out the efficiencies that they're promising to ring out. Uh, but but thus far, it does seem like um, things are going well for both Ameris and BB&T. Uh, Matt, let's jump over into the other four. Uh, names that we we had uh been talking about here last week we're talking uh, first and foremost let's jump into Morgan Stanley uh, y- you know not not a heck of a line out there for investors to worry about as far as Morgan Stanley but what was what was one of the takeaways you had from their quarter
1: well uh, they definitely had a stronger quarter than Goldman Sachs um, they're not as reliant on an investment portfolio as Goldman is so they didn't really have that heart in them as much they actually grew revenue year over year as opposed to pretty much most other investment bank-related companies. Um, they beat trading estimates handily across the board. Just a really strong quarter overall. Um, yeah, Like you said, Morgan Stanley investors don't have a whole lot to worry about. Okay.
0: Um, U.S. Bancorp, how'd that how'd that report look to you? Uh,
1: boring in the best way. <laughs> That's good. Um, Is that still a Berkshire holding? Berkshire still have a big stake in U.S.B. Oh, yeah they've, yeah. they've raised it a few times in the past year. Well, then it's right up um, Buffett's alley. Right, I mean they've they always put up the best numbers in of any of the big banks. Um, You know, return on equity over fifteen percent, return on assets almost one point six percent. Efficiency ratio is about fifty three percent. Lower is better in that most banks are happy to run under sixty. So and and it's consistent. I mean, you you see these numbers quarter after quarter after quarter. Like I said, it's their earnings reports are almost boring because you know what you're going to read before you even look at them.
0: Well, that's same. I mean, boring is good in a lot of cases, right? I mean, that's yeah, some of I, the most successful investing As Charlie Munger says you just, you just sit back and uh you know, not worry about anything. The less you do, the better it works. Um American Express, uh, you know, I, I, I've always been torn on this one. I felt like they were going to be in a little bit of a bind as as these card wars started to heat up, and it really becomes more and more about the incentives and the rewards. And certainly, American Express is paying a little bit more on the reward side to make their card uh, offerings more attractive for their members, but. You know, I said that word. They're members. I mean, Mer- American Express still is a strong membership business. At the end of the day, I mean, I, and I, I do like that. I feel like they've adapted very quickly in in the face of what has been a, a, a you know a changing card environment. Um, I mean, it's it's worth noting. I mean, this marked the ninth straight quarter of of currency adjusted revenue growth of at least eight percent. So, I mean, they are they are hanging in there. It's not been yeah, the stock hasn't lit the world on fire, but it's been a good one to own over the past several years. And I, I'd like to see the tie-up now with companies like PayPal. I mean, they're doing things here now with PayPal and Venmo, so you can split card purchases. And, and they're even enabling it to where customers can pay with American Express points, where PayPal is accepted. So, I mean, that's a that's a good forward-thinking company, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah. They're they're definitely putting out some new innovative products. I um, like you said, they're they are paying for it. Um, this quarter, actually, marketing and um, and benefit costs went up a little, a little bit more than revenue did, which not a cause for alarm. I mean, you got to spend money to make money, and these are <laughs> customers they're acquiring potentially. I know a lot of people uh, who have never really been a high dollar credit card person who are getting the platinum card just because yeah. it's you know they're seeing the value in it. I mean, I have a platinum card in my wallet. It sounds expensive until you. I don't have to pay for Ubers when I go up to HQ. I don't have to pay for you know baggage fees when I fly. Um, There's there's a lot of really good benefits to it, and then and that's on top of the rewards it earns. So and it's really like they're really doing a great job of getting millennials. The Uber benefit especially is really something that attracts millennials. Um, The airport lounges are, you know, those are just nice. Being honest with you, I, I, I I have I have I have personally scheduled longer layovers intentionally a few times since I got the Amex Platinum just to be able to use the lounge benefit.
0: I think the last time that I had Dan on the show, he was when we were talking about the Apple card and he he had uh, he he had gone back to a couple of stories that you were telling him about the the benefits of that platinum card. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, he I, actually, I, he got it. He got it last week. Did he? Okay, so
0: he bit the bullet. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I have I have the American Express Gold Card. I've had it for I don't know ten years or something, and. I A lot of my spending is migrated over to my Visa, my my, um, Amazon Prime Visa card, but I I do keep the American Express card. I I keep. I mean, traveling—it's great. There are perks that you get when you when you travel with it. I I do find it to be to be a a very helpful, reliable card. I think. I mean, it's it's one I'll likely have for the rest of my days, Um, and and they're going to get that membership from a membership fee from me every year along the way. So, um, so
1: don't be too worried that they're spending to. To get new customers, because these are going to be customers for life, and if you get if if they're getting these high dollar cards, they're generally good spending customers. So they're spending money in the right way. Yeah, it's kind of the takeaway.
0: Good brand power there too. Uh, Talk a little bit about Citibank, uh, Citigroup, Citibank, whatever. Uh, Is this one even really? You feel like this is something investors need to be. Is this, is this a company investors need on their radar? I mean, you remember it was 10 years ago, these guys were reverse splitting just to make their stock price look a little bit more palatable.
1: Well, I, I'd say yes, they're they're the cheapest of the big four banks. I mean, I just, there's a good reason. They're they're much more international than the others, so they have a whole other level of risk. So, But they are on a lot of investors' radar because they, cha- they trade for a big discount to book value. Um, they actually had a pretty decent quarter. The, the biggest red flag I saw was that their net interest margins were even worse than we thought they would be. Oh. We expected them they, they dropped a full 10 basis points more than the market expected. Um not necessarily a cause for alarm. They're not my favorite bank stock. I I'm not a, a swing for the fences kind of guy when it comes to bank investing. Um Citigroup, I feel, is the, the, you know, the highest risk, highest reward of the big four stocks. If you if you're right about it, and the global economy really does well. Um, Because remember, Citigroup's a very global bank. Yeah. Um, If the global economy does well, Citigroup investors are going to be really in in good position. But just got to remember, it's not just about the U.S. like it is with a lot of the other banks.
0: I'm curious to know your opinion here. When we talk about a lot of these big banks, and I mean, we're talking about companies like Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs and U.S. Bank or American Express. These are all banks I believe every one that I just named there are that Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway still have significant ownership stakes in these banks. Do you feel like in some cases perhaps is it worth investors looking for that bank exposure? Is it worth just buying a few shares of Berkshire Hathaway and calling it a day or is Is that a little bit too simplistic in thinking?
1: Well, I, 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 there's nothing wrong with buying a few shares of Berkshire in any case, but uh, you got I think Buffett's bank portfolio is about it's under a hundred billion dollars. so it's less well under twenty percent of the company's value. So I wouldn't call it a bank investment per se. I think the banks have a ton of potential to produce great returns. Like I mentioned, some of them are buying back. Almost ten percent of their shares per year, so that's a ten percent return on your investment before you you uh, think about an increase in profits or dividend or anything like that. Yeah, so there's a lot of long term profits to be made. I, I would not be surprised if banks were the best-performing sector over the next decade or so. All right, well, hey, and guys. I would invest directly. To, to more, to better answer your question, I would invest directly.
0: All right, well, I'm sure investors uh, and our listeners will appreciate that. Uh, let's take a quick look here at some recent news from Schwab, and I want to open this up with a tweet that we got from at Nate the Blade. And at Nate the Blade says, "I'm patting myself on the back. Worth discussing on financial and industry focus to see if other brokerages will follow suit." And the point that Nate the blade is patting himself on the back for is that Schwab has now introduced the ability to purchase fractional shares on their platform, which is something we were all kind of hoping we would see at some point as we race down to this zero-cost commission model. Uh, What do you think this means for Schwab?
1: Well, for Schwab and its investors, I think it means two big things. One, it makes it practical to invest any amount of money. If I have an extra $2 and want to buy, you know, Berkshire stock, I can do that if I'm buying fractional shares. So it really helps you put more money to more of your money to work. Um, it makes dividend reinvestment not as necessary because, in my mind, that's been one of the big perks of enrolling in dividend reinvestment is I get commission free fractional shares. Now I can do that anyway. Yeah. Um, and it makes high dollar stocks investable to you know smaller investors. So a lot of Absolutely. people just starting out can't afford a share of Markel or or Amazon, for example. Um. The better question I'd I'd pose to to you and to our listeners is does this make stock splits obsolete?
0: I was just wondering about that as well. I, I was gonna ask you that. So thanks for beating oh, me to well, it, there Matt. We go. But, no, I mean I think that's a really good question because we had that question posed to us from a number of different people on Twitter over the course of the last couple of weeks. I, I mean, I, I I feel like I mean, I don't know that I don't know that companies are gonna split or not split based on what platforms will accept fractional share purchases but i i mean it sure does seem like this is one more reason a company could say you know what we don't need to split our share because we don't need to open ourselves up to a larger investor base
1: yeah like um a, uh, apple for example a few years back when apple did a 7 to 1 split um a lot of investors like new, smaller investors especially were cheering because now the stock price went from about you know, seven hundred dollars to a hundred dollars, and it became more accessible. But now, if you could just take your hundred dollars and buy one seventh of a share, the company why would they? Why do they need to go through the hassle of splitting? I'd imagine there's I don't know this off the top of my head the numbers, but I'd imagine there's quite a bit of regulatory costs involved with doing a stock split.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, well, that's that's really the the main downside is that I mean, you're. You got to pay to do it, so there are transaction costs that are affiliated with doing that, and you know, I mean, they're they're just rounding errors. I think at the end of the day, when you talk about a lot of these big businesses, um, we've talked about some of these companies before, Amazon or Markel, where leadership maybe would rather have that high stock price because it it encourages a shareholder base that's that's able to focus a little bit more on the long haul, and that's all fine and dandy, but but. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember back in the day, I mean, many, many years ago, when I was able to finally get enough to buy my first share of Berkshire Hathaway B stock before it had split. I mean, it was a $3,500 share price. And I mean, that was kind of an aspirational goal, but I got there and I did it, and that was cool and everything. Um, and, and then, of course, shortly thereafter, they they went ahead and split for that acquisition, and uh, you know opened it up to an entirely uh, new shareholder base as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I, I I don't see why. I mean, if you have that ability to buy to buy fractional shares, I don't know why a company would then say, hey, well, let's just go ahead and split our stock because you know that's one more problem that you're not trying to solve.
1: Yeah, definitely, and, and the dividend reinvestment thing that I kind of brought up a little bit. That, that could be, you know, obsolete for investors now too. I mean, the two biggest benefits of dividend reinvestment were that you avoided commissions, you know, your money was automatically reinvested and you were able to put all your money to work in fractional shares. Both of which you can do now with with, with Schwab and I have a feeling they're not going to be the last brokerage to roll out fractional shares.
0: No, I think you're right. I think we're seeing the trends that are very clear and I mean, it this is a big win for investors in both cases. I mean, it just it gives you the opportunity to invest in, in many more businesses than, than you ever might have been able to invest in before. And I, and I don't think we'll see uh, a lot in the way of splitting. And I think that with a lot of these big businesses that have these big share prices, well, I mean, those are big share prices for a reason. Those businesses are doing really well. I think we'll continue to see them grow. Um. Let's jump into real estate here, real quick. The the world of million acres, and you guys have been talking about when you mentioned WeWork earlier in the show. And this fallout with WeWork has been nothing short of phenomenal. I mean we've we've gone from a multi billion dollar potential IPO now to a company that's essentially in need of a bailout just to to keep existing, and it's going to have some. Impacts on the commercial real estate market, and this is right up your alley. This is what you guys are doing over at Million Acres. So, what's the feeling on the team right now in regard to WeWork and these potential impl- implications on the commercial real estate market?
1: Well, it's definitely something we're watching closely. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole IPO saga because we do It's not that long of a show. <laughs> but uh, it, to make a long story short, investors they released a prospectus before. Ahead of a proposed IPO, um, the financial condition pretty much made investors run away. Uh, just to day one scary statistic that I would never go near. They have $34 billion in lease obligations they're committed to. Sheesh. Um, and that's on top of $1.4 billion in other debt that they've racked up. Good Lord. They're not making any money. They're running out of money fast. They were counting on the IPO to have enough money to keep operating for more than a couple more months. Um, so, it's something we're watching really closely because they, it's a lot of people are surprised. They are the largest private sector office tenant in a lot of major markets, specifically New York and London. Um, they have five points, yeah, they have 5.3 million square feet of New York real estate. Wow. Now, that's only about one percent of the market, but it represents. A much more substantial percentage, I think about five or six percent of the total new office space that has been absorbed in the market. So without I was reading a statistic that New York, especially without WeWork over the past few years, new office space would actually have a negative absorption rate, meaning that it would you know, supply would out outpace demand. For the time being, we're in okay shape because there's talk of either JP Morgan or I think Softbank leading a around to kind of save the company and keep the lights on so they're not going to have to break all their leases but if they pretty much the big reason that we've had positive market trends for the past few years goes away that could set off a big chain reaction in markets like New York London everywhere else they have a big presence um, we invest in one office uh reIT through million acres or through mogo rather that has no exposure to WeWork, and that was one of the specific reasons we picked it. Um, But most New York, uh, the real estate investment trusts that own New York office space have some WeWork exposure. So, we can see a little ripple effect if if WeWork actually does happen to go under.
0: Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that one for sure, and I know you will, too. We'll follow up with you uh, over the coming weeks to see exactly what transpires here. Uh, Let's move over to what's quickly becoming a very popular feature on the show. What's the last stock you bought and why? Uh, We have a couple more for you this week. Uh, One from at Cricket 99238 Niraj Kapoor. Niraj says, I bought Shockwave Medical as I have too much biotech but needed to diversify to a product development company with a moat. I heard even Abiomed has a 6% stake in it. And, Niraj, that's true. I did confirm that on CapIQ. Abiy Ahmed does have a 6% stake in Shockwave. So, hoping that works out for you. And from at IMCN90, not only does he say, We had an interesting podcast with TD Ameritrade and its loss of revenue from commissions. Could their dividend be in danger of a cut? I answered... uh, That question, I don't think so, but then he goes on to say, My last stock I bought, Vail Resort, fresh air experiences, dividend. Uh, I like that one, you know, Vail Resorts that's one we're uh looking at here for a couple of other services as well. And, um, man, I tell you, they're just Land, land is limited. And when you talk about all of those mountains, I mean, they did make this interesting acquisition recently that gives them a lot more exposure here on the East Coast. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for them. But regardless, it is a, a company that's done very well for a long time, and shareholders have, have benefited from hanging on to those shares. Uh, so great stuff, folks. Thanks for chiming in there. And hey, listen, I mean, we want to read the last stock you bought and why. So, make sure and email us at industryfocus@fool.com at or hit us up on Twitter, at MFIndustryFocus. Let us know the last stock you bought and why. We'll read it on the air. Okay, Matt, it's been a long show. We've got one more segment here. Let's make it count. we got one to watch for our listeners. What is a stock you'll be watching here for the coming week?
1: I will. I think every earning season I do this, but I'm going to go with my winner of bank earnings, Bank of America. <laughs> um, I, like you said, I, it's a stock I've owned for a long time, one that I plan to own for the foreseeable future. I love the. I think the repurchase is going to give investors a nice return on their investment all by itself, and that's not including any future earnings growth or or the dividend, which is actually pretty decent right now. Uh, bank of America has raised their dividend tremendously in the past few years. I think it's about three percent and and rising. So I I think banks are still undervalued. I think Bank of America is really still undervalued. So I if you want some banking exposure, that's the way I would go.
0: All right. Well, post earnings, I mean, you got to take that to heart, man. I know you liked what you saw. I did too. Um, I'm going to be taking a look at Live Oak Bank shares. Ticker for that one, it's L O B. It's not one we talk about a lot here, uh, but Live Oak has earnings coming out on Wednesday. It's a little small cap bank based out of North Carolina, um, but interestingly, it looks like we're going to have the bank president and former Goldman Sachs partner, Huntley Garriott, on the show here in November. So, excited to dig into the company, learn more about it and Huntley, um, and bring that interview to our listeners eventually. That's Live Oak Bank Shares, uh, one I'm going to be paying attention here for the coming week and beyond. Uh, so, hey, listen, Matt, thank you for digging in and being a part of this big earnings palooza uh, festival that we had today on Monday's industry focus. This was a big one. Um, we may not have quite the same, uh, quite the same volume of, of companies to cover here in the coming weeks, but but no doubt, earnings season is just getting started. So I bet you we'll have a few more to cover as the weeks go on.
1: Definitely. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right. Well, you have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan for Matt Frankel and Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.